Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. I'm Carl Mack and this is Combat Chronicles. Um, loads to talk about today, but not really a huge amount of fights to talk about. I'm going to talk about a couple of fights in this podcast. Bit of news, bit of fight talk, um, you know... Just a load of shit, really. Um, big ones, Bivol versus Ramirez, which we'll get to later. Um, first thing I want to talk about, I want to sort of start on a bit of a, a negative note. Negative note in the sense of who I'm talking about and how I don't want to be talking about this person uh, negatively. But Buakau, the legend of uh, kickboxing, um, had a fight this week. Um, well, it was a fight. Probably wasn't supposed to be one. Uh, it's against uh, Yoshihiro Sato, who's a famous uh, rival of Buakau's and perhaps most famously amongst uh, fans of kickboxing, knocked out Buakau in his prime back at um, uh, K1 Max back in 2008. It's just one of the most amazing results um, in sort of kickboxing history, really, just considering, you know, they'd already fought Buakau's stature at the time and the fact that Sato banged them out. Always dangerous, Sato. Um, if you remember the super podcast I did on the match a couple months back, uh, we had uh, Shinsuke on the podcast, Sato, one of his favourite fighters. Um, but they had a little, you know, sort of exhibition and uh, this week. And I don't know if you remember the last time I spoke about Burkhouse, and I'm doing speech signs, uh, quote marks in the area, exhibition uh, against Kota Miura, uh, rising mixed martial artist. But if I'm not mistaken, I think I sort of touched upon how it ended up being a real fight and young Kota Miura, who's like a, an MMA novice, ended up getting the shit kicked out of him. And Buakau wasted Yoshiro Sato in the first round in this fight, absolutely drubbed him and Sato had to go to the hospital after the fight and from what I understand, Sato originally retired from kickboxing because he'd had a head injury of, of some sort. Of, I can't pinpoint exactly what it was. But Buakau took it to him and actually, this exhibition was agreed as an exhibition. And Burkow supposedly knew that. Sato knew that. And yet Burkow beat the crap out of him. And there's a few things over the years about Burkow. I remember maybe about 10 years ago now. Or maybe a little bit less than that. Maybe 8, 9 years ago. He sort of punched a dog. Um, or was like, he didn't punch a dog. Like, you know, like we think about someone that's punched a dog. But a do- his dog was in distress and Burkow was playing with him. Uh, in a way that was, I don't think it's animal abuse. I love dogs. Anyone who knows me knows I lo- I love dogs. Um, but it was a bit uncomfortable. It was like, come on, mate, you don't need to go that rough. And I think I feel remember correctly. I think he was sort of doing that thing where you hold the wrist and say like, stop hitting yourself, like you would to your, your kid brother or something. 
but it's a little, it's a dog, and you know they don't understand that. And there was a point where it seemed to be getting too vigorous. Maybe I'm misremembering it, and it was worse than I am sort of recalling. But I remember at the time, I didn't really think it was animal abuse, but I thought it was, um, it was, it was close to it. That's my recollections. As I said recently, I thought that ex- quote unquote exhibition went too far. This one appears to be tantamount to assault, and it's a real shame. We've got the bare knuckle fight with Senchai coming up. That, I assume, is actually an exhibition, as they are friends. Um, is that bare knuckle, or is it just a fight? No, I think it is bare knuckle. They are friends. And Burkow wouldn't try any shit with Sencho anyway, even though he's much bigger than him. It's just they don't have that sort of relationship. Um, but the fact of the matter is, what Burkow did in this, especially to a, a fan favourite like Sato, is fucking disgusting, if, if, if that is correct. So, I think it's worth mentioning... I suggest you can go and check the fire out. It's on YouTube. Tell me what you think over on Twitter at CombatCR. Um, but yeah, I thought it was worth sharing because it's controversial um, and it's just a real shame. It's just not nice to see a legend like Burkow apparently uh, doing something as nefarious as this. Is it the case that, I, from what I understand, Burkow was aware? Is it the case that the promoters to get Sato over have told him it's an exhibition and not told, told Burkow? I don't know, but to me, from what I understand, he was completely aware, uh, went to town on him anyway, and uh, could have seriously injured a guy who was not up for that sort of level of competition. We're going to stay in the world of kickboxing uh, for a moment, and for the foreseeable to some extent. Um, I mentioned the match uh, in the previous segment about Burkow. Takaru, one of the uh, one half of the biggest fight of the year, um, for those that are unaware or jumped into combat sports late or maybe just don't listen to this podcast or weren't aware of the wider world of combat sports. The match took place early on in the year. It was K1 star Takaru versus Rise and Ryzen star Tenshin Naskawa. Um, Takaru lost. He's been battling a lot of injuries. It seemed that his time off uh, sort of involved him flying around the world sparring and uh, as hard as possible. Um, doesn't know how to do things by half, but he has had a lot of uh, surgery, a couple of surgeries, sorry, to deal with some niggling injuries. And he is ready to come back. But he announced this week that the K1 contract is up. There are no more fights to be had with K1. Um, it's a lot to sort of discuss about this, which I will in a second. Um, and that he's going to be a free agent. And immediately the idea was, uh, sort of the conversation amongst fans online was, where's he going to go? Is he going to go to one championship? You know, a fight with Rod Tang would be a huge attraction for all combat sports fans, I'm sure. Um, you know, is he going to sort of have his own promotion and just fight on, you know, Japanese TV in, in one-offs and in, in showcase fights. Um, you know, is he going to maybe fight in MMA? Um, is he going to turn the boxing? No one really knows. But I think the sort of the best idea I heard that is he's enough of a star to sort of do what he wants. Um, one fight here, one fight there. So to expect him to sign for one championship for uh, a number of fights, probably unlikely. Um, it might well be that he does still fight for K1 here and there or does some sort of co-promotion thing. Or, you know, I think the, the notion that he's just going to jump over to Rise is it's not going to happen. Um, I think that, I think people think of them as sort of like one and two, jostling for one and two. And it seems like that to, on the outside world. But I think in terms of their ratings and everything on, Ab- on Abama and in and their sort of perception in Japan, K1 is, is the big one. You know, the sport itself is known as K1. It's not just a promotion, you know. K1 is the sport. I mean, Rise is very much um, a little red-headed stepbrother, even though 
given the match card we saw and the abundance of talent they have, um, I mean, fucking hell, Rise is excellent and, and had a fantastic year, fantastic couple of years, but certainly on a, on a grander scale, given uh, how they won the event, so to speak, of the match, have had a fantastic year. So that's not going to happen. Be interested to see what Takaru does next. Good to see that he is definitely going to come back. Um, but yeah, for K1, and this is what I want to talk about, Not it just doesn't concern Takaru's career, but K1, they don't have a huge amount of stars left. I'm going to use this as a segue perfectly into the next segment, but they don't have a lot of great stars left. Takaru was definitely their biggest star, their biggest star for years, their biggest star since uh, Masato, um, and, you know, really is um, concerning for, for K1, given they're not having the best year. There's still some great fights, still have some great events, but, yeah, the optics of the of the match card don't look great. Um, I'm not sure how it's perceived in Japan, but it doesn't look great to me, and, you know, more than... Uh, one uh, friend of mine and you know other fans that I know doesn't look particularly great for K1. Um, so and they're losing their their biggest star. I mean the idea was going to be that you know Takaru would come back um, and okay he's not the best in the world clearly lost attention but he'll be back and he's still marketable when he finished that fight strong and there's still some relatively interesting fights uh, to make for him um, and you know since Takaru's been gone. Uh, things have changed. Certain fights that looked appealing, maybe not quite as appealing now. Um, and, you know, K1's still got some interesting fighters, but some of the guys they've tried to push in the last couple of years haven't quite panned out, like Yuki Agawa, for instance. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting position for K1 to be in. Maybe they're fine and just, you know, as a Western arm being, I'm maybe worrying about things I don't need to, but, yeah, it's a shame. Especially when, segue man, a fighter looked like he was going to be one of their big stars. Ren Hiromoto ditched a couple of years ago. It's gone over to MMA, and I'm going to sort of talk about him now because when he went over, I, just, I wasn't happy. I thought that Ren was going to be the next big star of of, of K1, um, and and he was a fantastic fighter in kickboxing, 100%. That's why he was a young, marketable uh, to some extent. We'll talk about this in a second, but you know, certainly. In some senses, marketable um, fighter. It could bang. He was quality. He was, he was taking out more experienced adult fighters as a teenager. Just what we like to see. And he ditches and goes to MMA. And he, all he talks about is how much he prefers MMA. And you know, we've seen other prominent fighters leave kickboxing and go to other sports. Boxing is usually usually the allure. Um, but Ren went over to MMA, and I was secretly, and actually it wasn't secretly, I was openly happy um, when he lost his first bout uh, new, on the Rising 26 big New Year's Eve card uh, December 31st of two years ago now, and he lost his second fight, um, but now he's 2-2 two and two because this past week um, at Rising uh, Landmark 4, um, which is when Rising do their caged events, which is sort of like prospects and whatnot, um, he won against uh, Satoshi Yamasu, and what's interesting about this fight is Ren is starting to win me over as a, as a mixed martial artist. Um, what we saw earlier on with this, and let's be honest, he's still really young. I was unfair. He, he's 24. Um, I was unfair to sort of use my kickboxing bias. Not that I'm not an MMA fan, but I just, if you've heard me speak about this before, I'd love for kickboxing to at least retain some of its talent. There's enough to go around, you know. Always, you know, Bunching up all the talent in just a couple of sports is, is bad. You know, I'd like to distribute it as evenly as possible. And Ren was just a quality fighter. It looked like he be could be a potential star. So I was just kind of like, yeah, fuck you, man. You lost. Get back to kickboxing. But 
what he did this weekend against a wily experienced competitor was quality. Um, knocks over by a leg kick almost immediately. Gets back up, composed himself, drops his man multiple times, showed poise, accuracy, that power, which we know from kickboxing now really... He, He's feeling more confident on his feet. He's able to defend takedowns more. He's able to sort of stay out of, uh, you know, if you watch a lot of Japanese MMA, you see a lot of people getting caught with stuff that's somewhat rudimentary because you get a lot of, like, leg lock specialists and, and stuff like that. He seems to be able to navigate that a lot better now. Uh, it just seems like he's just really feeling himself as a mixed martial artist, and it's really intriguing to see, you know, and actually, it's fine if he's a local attraction. He doesn't need to build up to eventually come to the UFC or something, even though it's something he may want to do, or Bellator, more likely, given the, the rising connection. Well, I'll be more than happy to see crossovers there. Um, that'd be fantastic. But the fact of the matter is, there's plenty of domestic talent to go around. There's plenty of veterans that he could fight. There's plenty of showcase matches he could have. Um, and Ryzen, you know, more than happy for Ryzen to pick up stars. Um, Ren's a real, real weird one. He's like, fuck you to everyone. He talks shit to everyone. He's just not what you'd expect from a Japanese fighter. He's got back tats, which is just like poison for a, for a, any anyone who wants to be on Japanese TV, essentially, because of the long-standing uh, Yakuza uh, connotations. You know, uh, if you're aware at all about Japanese society, even though it's getting slightly uh, better recently, uh, from what I understand from people who are out there. Um, you know, for example, if you're a, a Westerner with a tattoo could say i love mum on your arm you may well and more likely to be refused entrance to an onsen to a public bath because of the connotations with the yakuza so for ren to be covered in tattoos wanting to get on fuji tv it's it's a no-no it's tough is a tough sale but at the same time he's got this fuck you attitude he knocks people out you know he's, he's a real quality exciting fighter um sort of the sort of um what the opposite of what you would tend to expect from a Japanese fighter. They're known for generally, you know, although we do have some crazy zany characters, 100%. That's true. But usually, from what I understand from Japanese fighters, and God knows I love a lot of them, modest, humble to a fault. Um, you know, not generally one to trash talk, even though we've had some big characters. Um, it's just Ren is not like that. Ren is like, I don't give a fuck. You, I'm going to fucking destroy you. Um, you're a loser um, and basically I'm just way way better than you and he's young he looks cool he's marketable and I really hope that he can continue to uh, build he's now as the Americans say 500 uh, you know he's 2-2 two and two in his MMA career he's starting to claw it back and actually as we know we've treated Ren differently because usually with prospects in MMA we go yeah it's fine you lose all the time it's that kind of thing but Ren he come in with a lot of hype talked a big game as I say, there's that existing uh, connection with him in kickboxing. So going 0 and 2 to start his career, you're like, ha ha, you failed. Um, and actually, it's completely unfair. It was just the usual um, prospect losses early on in MMA. We just treated him differently how we did to other prospects. At least I certainly did. I know there are others out there who did too. So glad for him to be back on the uh, on the winning winning track. And just in terms of the the quality he's got, and in terms of striking he's he possesses. To essentially, you know, keep training him, you know, to be an anti-wrestler, uh, to sort of, and that's not a massive problem in Japanese domestic MMA, but to be an anti-wrestler, to be able to utilise the clinch more, to be able to frame off and, and, and implement the striking skill he has, 
become more well-versed in avoidance submissions, you know, he could become a really exciting and intriguing member of Ryzen and, and of the Japanese MMA scene. And certainly, um, you know, there's going to be interesting fights that may be better at all if these cards happen. I'm hoping, even though he went the distance over the weekend, um, I think he's six or seven knockdowns or something. I'm hoping that he have a good, quick enough turnaround. Might be able to see him on that uh, Bellator X Ryzen card, um, which is the big New Year's Eve one uh, this year. That's going to be the last podcast of this year. It's going to be the next time I'll cover, I imagine, Bellator and Ryzen. Um, I don't think that there are no more Ryzen cards. Um, that's a massive card. And the weird thing is, I said last year, um, when I started this podcast, essentially, don't do the awards until the year's over. Uh, lo and behold, it was a rising fighter who won Fighter of the Year. And actually, I think, given there's a fighter fighting on this card who I think could potentially be Fighter of the Year for 2022, I'm going to be accused of recency bias because if I think... If I'm right, and what I think is going to happen happens, I think someone on that card might just win overall, as, as I say, for anyone who's new to the podcast, Fighter of the Year is not mixed martial artist or boxer or kickboxer or, or, or nap Muay Thai. It's... All combat sports. Last year, it was a mixed martial artist who happened to fight on the New Year's Eve Rising card. It was Seika Ozawa, uh, the best uh, the best female fighter below £115 in the world. And this year, I think maybe there's someone on that card who may also uh, be in with a good shot of winning fighter of the year. But we'll have to see. And um, yeah, look forward to that one for sure. Uh, going to segue into the boxing in a minute, but before we have a little ad break, going to talk about a bit of boxing news because, as scooped by my good friend Taylor Higgins, uh, I think he's still Taylor on Sport on Twitter. You'll find him uh, well worth a follow. Just you know, one of the preeminent amateur boxing historians uh, and experts uh, around today. But knows his boxing as well, knows his MMA too, he's, and you know he loves his kickboxing as well. He's definitely a guy who's worth following. He's a top top lad. Um, he got the scoop this week that the legend, the Olympic gold medalist and multi-time uh, uh, world amateur gold uh, medalist, Andy Cruz of Cuba, has on his, I think it's his second attempt, at least second recent attempt, managed to escape Cuba and is likely to uh, land on, uh, not sure what soil, but um, favourable soil for someone wanting to turn pro very, very soon. Uh, for those that are unaware, uh, Andy Cruz is probably the best pound-for-pound pound amateur boxer of the era. Um Certainly, to my eyes, one of the most incredibly talented fighters um, wearing uh, boxing gloves that I've ever seen in the amateur ranks. Um, just an incredible fighter who can really make a mockery of his opposition. Elusive, quick, uh, just an amazing brain, just able to turn on a pin um, and just make a mockery of, of, of pretty much everyone he fights. Um, don't get me wrong, some of his opponents have grown up too um, and will no doubt be willing to uh, invite and, and greet him to the pro game. But uh, given my assumption is he'll probably sign with, with top rank, um, given that, I mean, fuck me. It, I'll just get the guy, his first fight, give him someone in the top 20. The second fight, give him someone in the top 10. Third fight, give him anyone you want. Don't get me wrong. There is always a chance that um, he won't transition well. There's always a chance that he might make the same mistakes that another great amateur of, of the last era and probably was given uh, given how it sort of matches up. He was the best amateur of the era before, in my opinion, Rabisi Ramirez, um, or one of. Um, he sort of turned up, looked really flat and didn't look in great shape and just sort of seemed to take his eye off the ball and lost his debut. 
what's the guy's name? Ad, Adnan Gonzalez, was that his name? Essentially a club fighter. Dropped early, out-hustled over four. Um, was it four? I'm not even going to check, guys. I'm going on pure uh, memory. He did it eventually, eventually lost. But for a guy that touted, multi-time gold medalist, world amateur champion, etc., etc., to lose on his debut, terrible in terms of the optics. This doesn't really happen. Um, but you can match Andy Cruz that good. He'll be fine. I don't think he's like Ramirez. He's not as he's not that sort of arrogant sort of fighter. Um, I think he'll be absolutely fine. Um, and he's got a bit more to him flair-wise than someone like Rigon Dow, who Bob Aram fucking hated working with and often switched off uh, boxing fans. Even me, someone who you know loved Rigon Dow from the amateurs and wanted nothing more than to see him in the pro game. And hey, he's still arguably like one of the top 250 greatest or top 300 greatest pro fighters of all time. Probably a top 10, 15, 20 super bantamweight of all time. Even though he didn't really achieve what we thought he might, still had you know some highlights in his career and pulled off one of the best wins of the last sort of you know 10, 15 years of boxing when he beat Nonito Donaire. So if Andy Cruz can do half of what Glamour Rigondale did, we'd all be happy. But I'm just glad that he finally got out. A couple of months back, he tried to escape, got pulled back. Um, Taylor on the he went to Cuba a couple of months back, did a fantastic write-up that I shared on Twitter, uh, which was for the fight site, about his, uh, his his travels out there. Highly recommend uh, searching that up. Just stop the podcast. It was called 10 Days in Havana. If you search Taylor Higgins, 10 Days in Havana, you'll find out on Google. Highly recommend reading it. Just one of the best pieces I've read all year. Um, don't care what combat sport you're into. You read that, the scene is set so brilliantly, and you get to meet... Andy Cruz and hear more about him and hear about you know what the system's like out there and sort of get an idea of his personality and for me just an incredible piece um, if I did article of the year that would probably win it because uh, that's the most evocative combat sports piece I've read all year it really was fantastic so I'm not going to talk about the UFC betting scandal that, nothing that really particularly interests me it's probably been covered uh, by the guys over at Bloody Elbow or something a lot more in depth and you know people been talking about it for a couple of days you know if you want to find that story, you can look elsewhere. Needless to say, looks pretty fucking dodgy to me. I'm going to take a little ad break here, then I'll be back to talk about the big fight this week, which was between uh, Gilberto Ramirez and one of the best pound-for-pound fighters in the world, Dimitri Bivol, before I uh, force you to listen to some awful uh, preordained ad uh, chucked on by my podcast provider. If you want to support me more directly, uh, hit me up over on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash combatchronicles. That's the last plug for that for today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, I've got to talk about Dimitri Bivol versus uh, Gilberto Ramirez because, uh, you know, Bivol is one of the best two light heavyweights in the world of boxing. And in my opinion, sort of top sort of six to ten Pound for pound, seven to ten. Seen a lot of Bivol's one of the top three pound for pound. Um, hey, if anyone listened to my episode uh, when he beat Canelo, which if I just pull it up uh, quickly to give you the uh, episode number, because I'm always terribly unprepared when it comes to uh, my own episodes. Because you know, why would you need to know about your own episodes, especially when you're referencing them uh, every fucking week? Um, the episode was look how I talk to. Uh, cover up the fact that I'm trying to find the fucking episode. And uh, episode 14, back in May. Bivol shocks Canelo and shocks me. Um, one of the best performances of the year against Canelo Alvarez. Um, but that's about it, really. A couple of fights before against a sort of smattering of half-decent light heavyweight, some of which he didn't look too impressive in, um, which is why I didn't really... I thought he had too many deficiencies to beat Canelo. Proved me wrong in that one. I think people look at Gilberto Ramirez, I think it's a 44-0 record and go, you know, he's one of the best super middleweights in the world. Let's just talk Turkey for a little little moment here. There were sort of two uh, sides of super middleweight. They had this sort of European and British domestic side, which is sort of mainly fighting over in the, uh, the Super Series. Then you had a load of sort of Al Heyman and Golden Boy or, or top rank or whatever fighters that were all fighting in the States. Uh, none of them were really fighting each other. None of them were really fighting any like the Callum Smiths, the George Graves, and that sort of stuff. So you had these two sort of uh, two sides of super middleweight. Um, Ramirez didn't fight any of them. Didn't fight anyone on either side really. A couple of washed up Euros. A couple of guys didn't really rate. Often didn't look too great himself. Um, you know, it sort of walked his way into this this title shot because you know he's got his long undefeated run. He's a, a NABF lightweight champion. Obviously, he's a previous. Uh, tight wilder WBO I think was it WBO down the super middle yeah it was you know loads of uh, um, loads of uh, title defences and whatnot. and uh, yeah he thought this was for the WBA so not a particularly 
quality fighter in my opinion. Somewhat interesting because Bivol had previously spoken about fighting down at super middleweight, so we kind of saw him against a former super middleweight who actually looked bigger than him. Um, but not a great fighter by any means. Pretty bog standard sort of uh, southpaw pressure fighter, boxer, a bit of a jack of all trades master, and I'm not even really a jack of all trades. Never really rated him, um, but decent, somewhat ambitious to start off in the fight, experienced. Um, and Bivol made him look worse than anyone else he's fought. So that's definitely something worth uh, mentioning. Uh, but this whole Bivol's one of the top four pound-for-pound pound fighters in the sport, along with Inouye, and he's better than Crawford, and uh, you know only Usyk's better than him, or he's on the same level as Usyk. Calm the fuck down, right? Calm the fuck down. Yes, he beat a fighter who was one or number one or number two pound-for-pound. Pound. You don't then become the pound-for-pound pound number one, and that's basically all he's got on his resume in terms of elite level opposition um which is more than an anyway but you know anyway he's got a lot of fights against decent opposition over a number of years and bivol really hasn't i mean i mean who the fuck did he beat before canelo he had uh pascal did he beat sullivan barrera back in the day yeah uh i can't even think of anyone else that he's fucking beaten that was shit oh, oh joe smith was decent i suppose um but yeah a lot of weight's been pretty barren and he ain't fought any of the top you know, Adonis Stevenson, Gavosdik, obviously Baturbi, who I'll speak about in a minute. Canelo, yes, fantastic. Um, even though people say, you know, he maxed out super middleweight, I don't agree. He was still a really good light heavyweight. Uh, and as I just said, with the Ramirez fight, Bivol's hardly the humongous hulking light heavyweight himself. So, tactically, he's on point. Um, in this fight, he was as well. Earlier on, it wasn't really a battle of lead hands. It was a battle of lead feet. Sapple versus Orthodox. Um, it's not as simple as... You've got to get your lead foot on the outside of the southpaw's lead foot. It's not that simple. But early on, that was happening. Ramirez doing the old standing on the toes, that sort of thing. Uh, was able to sort of uh, pop off. He was sort of throwing sort of half-hearted punches. Didn't really want to seem to overcommit. Um, Bivol was always quick to put him back in his box. Um, and by the fourth round, he did that. And then really, Ramirez didn't do too much after that. And it was pretty much one-way traffic. Ramirez had a few moments here and there, but... Bivol's uh, combinations and mastery of range, we'll get to that in a second, uh, was what really set him apart. He was able to hit him at will, uh, dictate the pace, range, rack up points, rack up big shots, you know, um, basically put Ramirez in his box whenever he, whenever he tried getting yappy. And because of that, it was pretty much one-way traffic. Now, what Bivol does, he's essentially a sort of you know, boxer puncher, counter puncher. Um, I like some of his different defensive responses, but there are sometimes these... I wouldn't say it gets him into trouble, but some things that make me think he's not hes not this proper elusive defensive genius or anything like that. What he does is, where he's this aggressive counter-puncher, he's got different defensive responses. Sometimes it's uh, concede range, um, slip out range. Sometimes it's concede range with gloves up, catch shots on gloves. But what he likes to do is little half-steps out to make you overextend and then fire back either with a right-hand counter, but often with a salver punches combinations to back you up when you're leaning forward. So you've got weight distributed on the front and then he's pushing you back you're quickly off balance you're scrambling to defend yourself and he's hitting you with a combination of punches often to corral you back to the ropes or something like that Bivol has a way of making you get disorganized very quickly but when he does that the little half step sometimes he's being baited sometimes his anticipation isn't perfect he does get caught here and there nothing big especially not from Ramirez um so you know but he, he can get a little bit uh, caught out of position himself because he's trying to bait someone um, you know, so that's the kind of thing that maybe, maybe that's just something inherent to him. Maybe that's something that he would shore up if he was fighting someone like Baturbiev, where 
really, you don't want to be taking shots on the shoulders. You don't want to be taking shots on the arms. You certainly don't want to get caught slightly inside the range where you don't want to be and get clobbered with something over the top. Um, I might in that fight, I could really see it's going to be more of a jab, pivot out, reset, jab kind of thing. He's had to be on point for that. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute. But in this fight, um, generally, nothing to really worry about what was coming back at him. Ramirez was half-hearted, especially after that fourth round when he really got twatted and put back in his box. Um, he seemed to sort of be going for the motions. Um, he struggled laying on a few times, got hit with a load of punches. Didn't really, wasn't really too um, uh, positive in his work, and uh, yeah, pretty much one-way traffic. But yeah, decent win. Uh, one to add to the Chilembas, and there's another one, Chilemba, and uh, you know. Who else did I say for? Joe Smith and that. Decent fighters. Uh, decent enough win. Um, Canelo's still the only great one he's got. Um, there's a couple decent fighters a lot every weight, but really the only fight we want to see. I'll be happy with a Canelo rematch, but next up we need to see Baturbiev. Eddie Earns saying Canelo first. We need to see the Baturbiev fight. He's nearly 40. It's one of the best fights we've made in boxing. Uh, stylistically, it's just fascinating. Uh, Bivol's a decent puncher. Um, Baturbiev's one of the hardest punches of all time. Bivol is younger. He's what is he? Late twenties, mid twenties. He's pretty young, right? He's not old by any means. Um, Baturbiev's pushing it. Um, he's you know he's getting towards. Um, oh fucking hell! He's thirty-one. Bivol. I, thought, I would have said twenty-seven. Um, yeah, Baturbiev's got to be pushing forty. Um, don't seem to be slowing down, but he's got to be pushing forty. Um, Bivol was a good amateur, uh, solid amateur. Really good amateur. Paterbiev was one of the best amateurs of his time. Um, you know, essentially these guys fight out of range, which is conducive to thrilling fights. Light heavyweight itself is perhaps one of the all-time great action divisions, um, right up there anyway. Um, some of the greatest nights and greatest fights in the history of the sport. And I feel like we've needed a fight like this for years. It's important for the division. Um, the the winner becomes you know locked on even in a, a division as strong as light heavyweight. Um, a, a scalp like this could push you into the sort of top twenty range of all time. For Baturbiev might push him into the top ten. For Bivol, I'd have said needs a bit more strength for schedule, but to have you know Canelo, a couple of decent supporting cast members, and Baturbiev, and then still have scope given his age to carry on and pick up a few more wins. Um, you know we could be looking at a potential all time great uh, light heavyweight and. I don't say that lightly because light heavyweights are a really, really stacked division historically. You see people that don't have Matthew Saad Mohammed in their top 10. He's number 10 for me. Some people don't have him in the top 15. That's how stacked the division is. It's absolutely stacked. You can, from fucking day dot, when fighters started regularly putting on gloves, there have been great fighters around that sort of weight, that sort of 170 pound, anything between 169 to 175 pounds, there have been amazing fighters plying their trade for 130 fucking years, 140 years, um, and these two are fantastic, I really hope it happens. Um, who do I think is going to win? Well, it's kind of pointless to go into it too much, because as I say, it's not signed anywhere near yet. Um, I still think Bivol, given the fact that um, he seems to be pretty sharp in reading fights and making little adjustments as he goes. Um, I think that you know he's got what it takes to take away, the, take the edge off Baturbiev's shots, keep him turning, keep the old man following him, uh, keep him turning. Um, but the thing is, Baturbiev's a weird fighter. You don't want to get out on the arms. You don't want to take anything for the body. You certainly don't want to take anything anywhere near your crown. He's just a really scary 
brutal puncher and in a way that is rare and he's not it's not like he's not got Nels himself. He has. He sets up his shots well, sees an eye for an opening, um, he's really good at drawing openings, really good at uh, drawing leads out of his opponents and punishing them. Um it's it's just such a tantalising fight. Bibol's faster, he's younger, he's more fleet of foot. But Batervius is a really scary fighter uh, to be in the ring with. So don't have any great reads on how uh, sort of who might win, but in terms of how it goes, I'm going to envision the fight. I could see Bivol really needing to be tip-top throughout the fight. No half measures, no little half steps, just out of range to try and lead Baturbiev on. Don't get me wrong, it's who dares wins. If he does that and pulls it off, it's a fucking all-time great performance, but I don't think he needs, really needs to... I don't think he's going to do that. I think he needs to really play the range game, stay tip-top for 12 rounds, jab... Jab, stay at jabbing range, constantly keep Baturbiev turning um, and, you know, just try his best desperately to keep Baturbiev away from him. But Baturbiev's a very strong man. He ain't the kind of guy you can jab and then push him off and then keep him turning. He's going to tire you out. It's a bit of a... It's not a Cotto Margarito kind of thing, but I can see that kind of d- dynamic with Bivol just looking absolutely class for six, seven rounds. And then Baturbiev chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. Sound like Anthony Kiedis there, didn't I? Chipping away now and then fucking just brutalising him and breaking him down down the stretch. But this is a young man's game, uh, generally, uh, and Bivol seems to have the legs for 12, which is funny because my criticism of him going in the Canelo fight is he, didn't, he often coasted, took rounds off, uh, faded down the stretch. Um, you can't do that against Paterbiev either. And actually, although he was fantastic against Canelo for 36 minutes, and he really was brilliant, one of the best performances of the year, regardless of combat sport, um... Canelo was fighting in spurts. He was able to put him in his box enough. Ramirez hadn't really tested him. But Terbiev might well make Bivol look like he did before. This, What I'm trying to say is I'm really impressed with Bivol, but I think we need to take a step back. The actual uh, data we've got to work with is very, very small in terms of Bivol against quality opponents and against quality opponents' his size. It's very, very small. Um, it's... it's it's not easy to look great this this good against fighters like this because there's some quality opponents in there, uh, not elite level, but you know certainly world class or you know fighters that we've seen against other world class fighters as a litmus test. And Bivol has fought some guys like the aforementioned Chilembo, whose whole career all they've done is make people look bad. Um, and you know, so you've got to take that into account as well. But the actual sort of uh, yeah, the actual poor data we have to to, to draw from and and to see how good we think Bivol really is, is relatively small. And anyone saying otherwise ain't got a fucking clue what they're talking about. Um, I was wrong on the Canelo fight, absolutely wrong. Um, answered a lot of questions in that. Looked quality in this fight with Zerdo, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, but the fact of the matter is, that's not that much of a wide range of star- stylistic um, sort of... Uh, sorry, a wide range of styles... For me to suddenly say that Bivol's this all-conquering pound-for-pound superstar again, I may be proven wrong. Um, that's a sort of uh, a sort of detriment to my style of analysis. I think I've touched on this before that I just need more evidence. I need more data to, to draw on. I don't just make wild, outlandish predictions. And the fact of the matter is, Bivol is still untested against a wide range of high-quality stylists, and there is a chance that you know that style and what he does and the sort of measures that he takes to uh, to mitigate his own deficiencies and the things he does to stop opponents doing what they do well. Because that tends to be what he does. He takes his opponent's uh, best tools away from them and then steadily builds 
his own rhythm uh, until he sort of, it doesn't drown like Usyk does, but he'll just sort of make people wary, tire people out, constantly keep them turning, um, give them different looks, as I said, different defensive looks, different off, sometimes it's jab only, sometimes it's a real fast combo, sometimes it's a single right-hand counter, sometimes it's a level change. He's constantly making you think, that's great, that's great. It's great against maybe fighters that are slightly slightly ponderous or, or so afoot or low output or someone like Canelo who's shorter or someone like Canelo who is really at his best even though he has quality and showed quality ability to pressure in spurts against Bivol is at you know at his heart essentially a, a pure counter puncher you know as much as he's added to his skill over the year over the years if you can keep him on the front foot he struggles. Fact. Salvador Sanchez was the same. That's not me saying Canelo ain't that great. There's plenty of fucking incredible fighters. Some of the greatest fighters of all time. James Tony's another one. If you can keep them turning on a pin, keep them, keep them following you, make them close the distance, give them less to work with. Um, you know, the cross count is not there because Bivol's so much longer than that. That's a fact. That's just the way it goes. That's not a criticism of Canelo. It's just the way the cookie crumbles. That is not necessarily going to work against Paterbiev, even though I think that's the way to beat him. So, yes, Bivol, quality. Definitely one of the top 10 pound-for-pound pound fighters in the world. Guess what? So is Arta Paterbiev. Um, let's hope it don't go the same way as Errol Spence versus uh, Bud Crawford. Little note quickly on UFC 181, which is happening this weekend. I've already spoken before about the potential uh, fight between Adesanya and, and, uh, and Pereira. Uh, maybe you're a boxing fan. Maybe you, you don't know anything what I'm talking about. UFC middleweight champion, it's £185. Uh, Israel Adesanya fighting a guy who he's fought twice in kickboxing, Alex Pereira, uh, who's, in my opinion, the, the most devastating striker in all of combat sports today. Uh, just mentioned Baturbiev, Pereira, wow, I would have him even higher than that. Um, you know, for a boxing fan, I always compare Pereira's power to someone like a Bob Foster, uh, just an absolute monster. Um, I've mentioned before how it's interesting to analyse this fight because... How Adesanya fights now isn't necessarily how he fought in either of the kickboxing bouts. And the way Adesanya fights, he's not going to be able to just turn wrestler. This is essentially going to be a four-ounce kickboxing fight. It's really unique in that sense. I'm really surprised if it doesn't. All evidence points to it being like that. And Adesanya now fights in a way which I haven't really seen him do against Pereira. So um, he's more negative now. Um, generally. Generally is. He can hold stance and hold range like he did against Paolo Costa and chip away. Maybe that's what he'll do. But against Pereira and the other fights, what he's doing is giving him a load of different looks, um, taking taking different angles. Um, Pereira in the first fight, in more nascent stage, was more of a banger. In the second fight, uh, closer to his prime, and did eventually catch up to Adesanya, you know, catch him and lay him out. But in, generally, the ebb and flow of those fights, as I've touched on before, Adesanya, it was a wash. Pissed it, really. Um, the sort of the main picture most people take from the fight was that Pereira won twice. We definitely didn't win the first one. It was a terrible decision. And in the second one, people really think about him getting knocked out. Amazing knockout. I mean, you get caught against the hardest puncher in the world, the hardest striker in the world. It's going to happen. Um, but Adesanya was pissing it before that, really, generally in that fight. Um, Pereira now seems a lot more um, sure of himself as well um, in a striking sense. I mentioned before, when I first assessed uh, Pereira's uh, MMA career for a site I used to work for, um, I sort of said how unsure he was on the feet because he was so worried about all other aspects of the game. Uh, it seems a lot more steady now. It seems more like his kickboxing self in the cage because um, he's, he seems less worried about 
uh, other things that uh, might take him out of his stride. So even though his, his striking wasn't necessarily great in his early MMA fights because he just seemed you could back him up to the cage so easily and he seemed so wary of being taken down, etc. Um, seems a lot more comfortable now. Um, I just don't know how he's going to deal with a mobile, negative, uh, pot shot in Adesanya. Um, it's hard. It's hard to analyze. It really is hard to analyze it because I don't think that Pereira is going to be able to get off as many sort of kicks that he's going to need to sort of make Adesanya more stationary. And I think that Adesanya is at a stage where he can more uh, properly game plan for taking away uh, Pereira's big tools. That ain't just the punches. He's devastating uh, flying knees as well. He kicks hard. You know, this guy's, it's just he's just made of steel, this fella. Um, but I could see him unravelling if he's getting stressed out, you know, if he's getting uh, forced to follow, forced to chase Adesanya down. I can see Adesanya chipping away at him and pot-shotting him, and I could see him winning the decision. That's my prediction. I think Adesanya by decision or maybe late stoppage, exhaustion plus turning the wick up. Because I'd love to see Adesanya turn the wick up. I hate it when you see like the fucking Vittori fight, the second one, or, or the, or the Cannoneer fight, or um, the Romero fight, where just barely anything happens because he's mitigating the chance for something to go wrong. I guess it, in this fight he really is because something could go terribly wrong. Or maybe he finally just, you know, like Silver did in the Balfour fight, eradicates all those bad memories while he's coming out and going, do you know what, fuck this, I'm going to take this guy out and then I can do whatever the fuck I want afterwards. I really don't know. Um, but I see a tepid kickboxing match where Adesanya just has more tools to defuse Pereira and win a decision and people are going to hate him even more. I saw it this week that, you know, Adesanya has haters. I saw this on Twitter, and it's like, yeah, because he talks a big game. He's an irritating talker, and I think he's a quality fighter. I think he's an absolutely quality fighter. To do what he does at that level is hard. I think people think if you just ponce about a bit, you're like, oh yeah, that's easy. Like, I, I dare you try and run away from a world class fighter for a minute, let alone five minutes, let alone twenty five minutes. Um, and he doesn't. He does mesmerise people. He slows down, slows them down, takes away some of their weapons. Uh, and you know, because of the threat of his own counter striking, he forces people's own output to drop. And because of that, then he can fight at a pace he's comfortable with. We know he's capable of more. That's what's frustrating about him. That's what's annoying about him because he's capable of so much more, uh, so many more electrifying feats. Um, but he's irritating outside the cage. He talks a lot of shit, and in the cage, he's often tepid. So. Yeah, of course you can have haters. This whole idea that it might be, you know, maybe related to other factors, I think is erroneous. I think, you know, generally, fighters that talk a big game, if you don't perform in the cage in a crowd-pleasing way, and I know people say, oh, you're a combat sports fan, you should appreciate these sort of performances. That's all good, but you don't get to talk about how you're better than everyone else and everyone else is a cunt, how you're going to destroy them and how you're going to make them look fucking foolish when you're throwing four strikes around. You just don't, don't get to do it. Um, I think... Probably for the division, the best thing would be Pereira to fucking nuke him because then we get Pereira versus Whitaker, which is a really tantalising matchup. Um, as it stands, Izzy's beating everyone else. His uh, foray into two hundred and five pounds was not successful. Maybe a fight with Jiri Prohaska would be more exciting, um, but and I think it would be, but maybe not that tantalising. The UFC top brass they gave uh, Izzy a chance because I think they wanted to make the Israel Adesanya versus John Jones fight. I imagine did work out. I don't think they're going to be that uh, open from doing that again. So really, we've got Adesanya. If he wins this fight, there ain't no one else coming through at 185. It's barren. It's top-heavy, and he's beaten the best fighter in that division twice. 
Um, regardless of what you think of the second uh, decision in the second Rob Whitaker fight, I don't think it was a robbery. Um, and I'd much I'd love to see Rob Whitaker get a, another fight. Is there much demand amongst top brass? So it kind of would be better if Pereira won. I just hope it's clean. Uh, as I say, reads on the fight aren't too exciting or tantalising because I just I find it hard to look at based on. I'm not sure how Pereira is going to perform against Adesanya in the kind of form that he's been in. Um, will I do a podcast on this? Yes, I am. I'm going to do something. Uh, maybe not on the whole card, but certainly on the main event. You might think, why, why are you not doing something on this whole card? It's stacked. It is stacked. It's a very good card. I'm going to be on heavy hands next week, talking about it with the boys, with Connor and Phil. Um, last time I did a kind of thing where I said, look, I'm not going to talk about that much on heavy hands. I'll direct people to my own podcast. But maybe I'll talk about a couple of fights on the pod and then save some for them as well. Um, so I've got some new stuff. Uh, if you want to go, you know, I don't want to just have my listeners go and listen to the podcast and go, Kyle's saying the same shit he just said on his own pod uh, because Connor and Phil are kind enough to have me on. I'll save some stuff for them, save some stuff for you guys. Until then, as I say, hit me up over on Twitter at CombatCR. You've had a, a Patreon plug already. There'll be some cool stuff coming out there soon. Guide to Pride, still working on it, guys. Just bear with me. It's, it's humongous and... Am I going to have a nervous breakdown making it? No, I'm, I'm prepared. But um, i just got more materials. Um, if anyone saw online, i just got more materials to contribute to that um, with this uh, a very early magazine covering the early events of the UFC, which just I've never seen before. Must be rare as rocking all shit. Um, you might think, why, you, why do you need uh, articles about early UFC to tell the story of Pride? Context, people. Context loads of context for this the whole fucking episode is nothing but context and I annotate my sources and I get the best sources quality out there and I just want to give you guys the best episode ever of this podcast which the Guide to Pride one definitely will be so yeah hit me up on Patreon if you want to get that sometime in the next uh, millennia and uh, yeah hit me up on Twitter with your thoughts before that app goes to shit hope you enjoyed this podcast and yeah hopefully see you on some form of social media soon until the next one thanks for listening peace out It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.